Hi, this is Tony Mandridge, and I am doing the Relationships and Revenue podcast with my friend, John Hewlett. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Relationships and Revenue podcast. I am your host, John Hewlett, and this is a secondary introduction to this week's episode. As you heard from the person who spoke just before me, I am interviewing Tony Mandarich, and this is part one of that interview. There will be a part two, and that will be in the next episode. So listen to this one all the way through, but understand there's a whole nother episode coming up with the remainder of the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, everyone, to it. the Relationships and Revenue Podcast. I am your host, John Hewlin. So excited to have each and every one of you join us today, either by listening or watching. So thankful you've decided to invest a little bit of your time. And as you know, I believe that our time is our most precious resource and I don't want to waste any of yours. So let's jump right into it. As you heard, I have the one and only Tony Mandarich with me today. Tony, how are you, my friend? I'm great, John. I'm great. How are you? Oh, man, I am pumped. So excited to be able to share you with our audience and your amazing story. Awesome. So. For those of you who don't know who Tony is, I, first of all, I find it difficult that you don't, but on the off chance that you don't, <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about Tony. For those of you watching at home, you know, I always have my notes. I am always prepared, but Tony is a former first round NFL draft pick by the Green Bay Packers. He went to college at Michigan State, the Spartans. He is the author of the book, My Dirty Little Secrets. Steroids, Alcohol, and God, The Tony Mandarich Story. He is a speaker. He is a professional photographer and content creator, but he has one other title that I think he probably holds most dear, and that is Dad. Yes, all of those things. <laughs> um. All right, so I, I got to ask this question, because I know you shared this information with me the other day when we were talking. You were recruited to Michigan State by, of all people, Nick Saban, who was a defensive backs coach at the time, correct? Correct. Okay, so how does a defensive backs coach who is, who has become clearly, at least in my mind, you know, the gold standard of coaching when it comes to the college ranks, a defensive coach is recruiting an offensive lineman. How does that work? Well, it's a, it's a great question and it's a very simple answer. Um, oh, good. It, it really is. And I, and I believe it's probably true even today, how they recruit, even though they have the portal now with the transfer mm -hmm. portal and stuff. So things have become a lot different, but that's just recently, but coaches are, you know, and recruiting such a huge part of college football. Um, it's, as you can see, um, Nick Saban and the university of Alabama do it very well. Um, and, and because you're building, you're constantly building to, you know, bring great players in that you can develop and they look at everything. I look, not just your abilities, but your, how you are in school, what your character mm -hmm. is like, all these things. But the reason Nick ended up recruiting me was because Ohio, my senior year of high school, I was in Ohio and Ohio was Nick's area. So it wouldn't have really mattered if I was a defensive back or a offensive lineman or a linebacker, doesn't matter what, if, if that's in your area, um, you know, that's who you're kind of responsible for. 
Okay. Now that's like, making more yeah, sense to me. Yeah, I'm getting yeah. it. Okay. Well, with the end, you know, that was, you know, pre-internet too, right? <laughs> that's a and good point. That's that a good point. Almost more than 10 years pre-internet. Oh, yeah. Well. That was a lot different. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Okay. So you're going to MSU and I mean, by all accounts, I mean, you are setting the standard for what it means to be an offensive lineman, clearly based upon where you were drafted in the NFL. I mean, you were the number two pick in the 1989 draft. Yeah. And it's so how, how does, for those who never lived in that world, who've never been a high level college athlete, let alone a professional athlete, what's that like for you? What, what was a typical day like for you? What did you have to do to ensure that you would be not only the best you could be for your team, but the best for you in order to get to the next level? Well, it, you know, it, it was a lot of work. I bet. And it didn't, it didn't, you know, when I got to Michigan state, it didn't, it didn't start that way because you're now at a different level of playing. You're in college from high school. So the athletic ability, you know, and all your competition has been raised a level. So you were the best of the best or cream of the crop on your high school team or your, or your high school, you know, league now people on your team in college are the cream of the crop of all those high schools. <laughs> right. Right. So it didn't start out in, you know, as, as far as dominating, um, as offensive line goes, you know, I would say by the third year at Michigan state, um, cause my first year I got redshirted and then I started the next four years. My, so my third year there, my second year starting, I started to, by the end of the season, I have a good understanding of what it's going to take. You know, I've seen enough and I've, I've been, you know, I tossed some people around and I got tossed around where I was like, okay, I see what it's going to take, how much work it's going to take. Um, well, what do I need to do if I want to become the best? And that was my goal was to, to become the best offensive okay. lineman, you know, in the country. Yeah. That was my personal goal. Um, and I was on a, I had the opportunity at Michigan state, which was a good platform. We played in a, in a great division, the big 10. So we played against high level competition. Nobody would question, you know, well, this is a great player, but they play in a league. That's the, you know, not a very strong league. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's great football players in every league. So week in week out for the most part, you're playing against tier one defensive line. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I had some wake up calls definitely my freshman year, the year I got redshirted when I didn't play, but I was on the sideline mm -hmm. when Notre Dame came to town and you know, you'd see some of the, the size of some of these guys, mm -hmm. it was like insane. I was like thinking like Mark Bavaro played for Notre Dame at that time. And he had a great career in the NFL with the giants. And, um, but I thought to myself, that guy's like, he, he's not even an offensive lineman. He's a tight end. He's a receiver, tight, you know, tight end. And he's bigger than I am. And I'm an offensive tackle. <laughs> so I was like, I need to really kind of get weight room and I need to really focus. And into that, you know, there's a plethora of details, um, yeah. have to happen. Um, and you know, and I'll give you an example. One of those details for me was I chose consciously not to go on spring break. You know, we we're just talking about spring break. Yeah. So yeah. I consciously chose not to go on spring breaks. And the reason why was because of this. 
spring break is usually like a, it's like a week long, but usually it's like a, almost like a two week break at school. True. So people cut out early and all this stuff and they come back a little bit late a day or two late. So I use those two weeks to stay at state train mm. and in this, you know, usually in the spring and, um, the people that were down partying that were say teammates or just, they didn't have to be teammates. They could be anybody that's an offensive lineman. That's, this is how I looked at it. They're down there partying and there's nothing wrong with that. They're kind of almost like losing two weeks. They're not just not training for two weeks, but they're actually almost going backwards if you party. Gotcha. Okay. Right. So I was, I looked at it like I was getting a four week advantage every spring break. Mm. Well, for five years in a row, I didn't do spring break because that's now five months of extra training that I got. Yeah. And that's like, that's just one spoke in the wheel or one detail I can, you know, give you an example of, of the things that it took to try to reach the goals that I had set for myself. Sure. Um, I obviously did some things wrong as far as using steroids. Um, I knew that they were against the rules. I felt, I really did feel that to get to the next level, uh, and play in the NFL, that majority of the players took steroids and that's simply, that's simply not true. It may, I mean, I don't think, it, I don't think it's ever been true. I think there's been waves in the NFL where there's been more usage than other times, different decades and stuff. Um, as time has gone on. And then from what I know about when I played, it was, it was, I mean, I'm talking like extremely low percentage of players in the NFL were taking steroids. Gotcha. Um, you can kind of tell, I mean, if I was a steroid user, so I could tell who was using steroids and who wasn't, or who, who left, you know, at 250 pounds came back at 275 pounds in four months with 25 pounds of muscle. It's, you know, it's almost impossible to do without enhancement uh, of outside chemicals. But, um, you know, that was one of the, that was another spoke in the wheel. Mm. Um, a, a lot of people like to focus on that spoke, yeah. um, because it was against the rules, but you, you know, you can take steroids and nothing can happen to you. Like mm. you, you have to put the work in. Yeah. So when I say that, I don't, I'm not saying yes, you know, or defending myself in that, in that sense, but it's like, yeah, I was wrong for doing the steroid, but it doesn't just happen. You have to work and you have to, I kind of doubled down on everything. Um, I slowed down my partying at school, Hmm. um, you know, and because it would affect how I would work out the next day. Oh, okay. And I, again, there's another spoke in the wheel. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, and, and there's literally, you know, dozens of those spokes in the wheel that I made conscious decisions on certain things on what is going to advance me or give me the best chance possible to achieve what, you know, my goal is. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you're mentioning that about the steroids because from an outsider looking in, if you don't know how they really work, the natural assumption would be just what you pointed out, and that is, oh, he took it, then all this stuff just happened. 
It's like, well, no, it can't just happen. You still got to put the work in in order to get the benefit from it. Otherwise, it really doesn't do you any good at all. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, really, then you're just, you're stressing your organs and not for no reason. And, yeah. the, and the, you know, if, if they work the way you had just said, right, the, the way the stereotype is of them working, majority of men would have a six pack, huge shoulders, big arms mm-hmm. and not work out, but take steroids. Right. And exactly. you know what I'm saying? It's like, it doesn't work that way. You have to put the work in regardless, you know? True. So needless to say, I was completely wrong. Look, you know, looking back, I was completely wrong and, and mis fully miscalculated that no, you can make it in the NFL and you can play extremely well without ever touching a performance enhancing drug. So uh, take us through that for just a minute. So you get, you've gotten to your junior year and obviously to your senior year and things are starting to click. Uh, the term that, that I have heard used from other professional athletes is that, you know, you've, you've kind of, you've gotten there that you've made it when the game, whichever game it is, it doesn't matter. It slows down. It's almost like it's going in slow motion for you. You, you've got such a handle on it. And I remember when I was playing, um, college soccer, it was a lot like that for me because mm-hmm. I started to get it. I started to understand things better and everything just kind of slowed down a little bit. Absolutely. The, I call it the matrix. Okay. Like yeah. the matrix moment, right? Like in the, obviously I'm not even sure the matrix was even released the movie yet, but no, not that it was 99s when the first 99, right? So yeah. it's like when everything went slow, you know, when they were, when they were doing their battle scenes and everything's like slow motion, right? It's like everything slows down and, and you hear that, like, like you had mentioned, you hear announcers talk about it that were former athletes and yeah. or players that are interviewed and they just, you know, they see things much clearer. I think one of the great examples is Tom Brady. I think a great example mm-hmm. is Peyton, Peyton Manning is a great mm-hmm. example. Um, I was lucky enough to play two years with him, um, in oh. Indianapolis. Nice. So, you know, he, he ended up, you know, running that whole show on yeah. you know, when the offense was on the field, because he, he could tell you, here was how prepared Peyton was. He could tell you on any play that was called, he could tell you what your assignment was for every offensive player on the field. Wow. And then if the defense shifted, mm-hmm. he could tell you everybody's assignment because assignments will change slightly. Oh, sure. Okay. So, I mean, he was that knowledgeable of the game. And I think that's part of what slows the game down for you. Let you see things more. You know, you have a lot more information, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the back of the toolbox and you're like process, constantly processing. If this happens, this has to happen. If that happens, this is a potential to open this other option up later in the game or later in the quarter, or we're setting somebody up for something, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's so much, um, there's so much complexity to it that people, I don't, it, it's hard to fathom and understand how much complexity is in an offense, especially an offense that's run by people like, like Peyton used to run, like Tom Brady ran probably like Joel Montana ran back in the day with the West coast offense. Yeah. Um, I think it's gotten more complicated and, mm-hmm. and maybe not more complicated, just more every detail orientated matters. Oh, I can, I can only imagine yeah. what, what that's like, yeah. the stuff, you know, now maybe you can help me with something. Mm-hmm. 
I heard growing up that I'm going to using the term lineman, offensive and defensive. <laughs> they tended to be not as intelligent, but I can't imagine when you get to the pro level, you have to be, I mean, real with it, especially an offensive lineman, all the stuff you guys had to know. I mean, not just the plays. I'm not talking about learning the playbook. I mean, right. there's just the nuances to things. I mean, you had to be so in tune with what was going on and to know the other guys around you yeah. so well that if they move, shift, do alert, make a certain sound that you knew it meant a certain thing. Yeah. I mean, I, can, I I'm sure there's way more to it than that, but. No, you're going right exactly in the right direction with um, how it is. And it's, there, there was, I don't think it's that much anymore. I, I think there was a stereotype at one time where offensive linemen were just big dummies or, or defensive linemen were. But I think when, you know, with, with the internet and with all the, the information age, if you will, how much information and insight and behind the scenes a fan can be brought into now that they start to be like, holy smokes, like there's a lot of stuff going on here. Now, you know, one of the things they talked about with my career when I was coming up into the NFL was how big and strong I was and how fast I was and how, you know, they didn't see an offensive lineman like this and yada, yada, and all this and all that. But I can tell you there were guys that were stronger than me that played, that, um, but they couldn't play at the next level. It's like they, because... Oh. You can, there was a lot of guys that could bench press a lot more than me that never saw the field too, because they, you know, either didn't have footwork or, you know, they weren't, and I'm not saying that they weren't super like intelligent. It's just that they couldn't, it's just a different animal. Like an offensive lineman is just a different animal. And it's, it's, there's a lot of things going on and there are some fundamental things that go across the board almost with every job. And that is the more prepared you are, the better. So <laughs> yeah. if you're prepared for all of these things and the guy that you're playing beside, and if you're playing beside one guy on one side, another guy on another side, if you played long enough together, that continuity, you can start doing things without even having to make a call, like just without even like defense shifts, you don't even have to say a word to change the blocking scheme. Um, you just know, and that. That has become, I think, less and less as time's gone by just because of free agency and just because of, you know, people traveling to different teams and all that. Yeah. So, but that's, it, it's, you have to be pretty, you have to be pretty intelligent, I think, to play offense. I mean, I know you have to be, and I'm not, <laughs> that's funny for me to say because I don't look at myself as like really intelligent. I just look at myself as kind of common sense. Okay. And just make common sense decisions. Um, and obviously there's a lot of mistakes made uh, yeah. and you learn from those mistakes and that's how you get better. That's why you practice. That's why you mm -hmm. practice football. And then you, you learn from the mistakes that you make in the game. You even learn from them during the game mm. in between the series that, you know, like you make a mistake or whatever, come to the sideline. Now they have it on the, you know, Microsoft surfaces or the Apple iPad you know, iPads or whatever, they would, yeah. when I played, they were faxing down literally with a fax machine. They were faxing down, um, images okay. of what the, what the lineups were pre-snap 
And then like another picture would be taken right at the snap of the ball. And they'd try to take three or four more pictures as the play developed. Okay. Then you could see where your footwork was or where this linebacker was lined up originally. And then if you, if he was cheating up and stuff like that. So okay. then we would go on the sideline and we'd correct it right there. And we'd say, you have to watch this because yeah. you know, it's, um, if you keep doing it, you're not going to be in the game. Right. Right. For sure. <laughs> okay. So talk to us a little bit about, obviously at some point, some of the stories about you were less than positive that would come out. Um, we're still talking about. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. I, I'm still, I'm referring to, you know, in your early NFL career. And so steroids clearly played a part in that. Um, and you took some time off. You said three years. So why take the three years off and what led you back? Well, you know, I never took, I never took steroids in, I only took steroids when I was in college. Okay. And I don't want to say I only took steroids. I mean, I took steroids when I was in college. I didn't take steroids when I was in the pros ever. Okay. Um, the testing was way more sophisticated and, and even these sure. days, it's even probably way more, but, um, the, uh, the, so many people focused on the steroid story mm -hmm. when it was the worst kept secret, you know, um, that they were missing the obvious okay. um, of painkiller abuse and, ah, and, alcohol, okay. and alcohol intake. So back. Now, was this prior to like the oxy stuff? Yes. Oxy, I don't think it was even around yet. Okay. So this is even before all of that came yeah. down. Gotcha. You're okay. talking like 89 to 92 mm -hmm. is what is it where the green Bay years and you know, and it wasn't, it was, it was the media it was whoever, whoever was saying, well, why is he not succeeding? A lot of them were defaulting to, well, because he's not on steroids anymore. Well, that was oh. probably 10, 15% like of the reason. The majority of the reason was the painkiller abuse, the intake of painkillers on a daily basis and, um, and chemical abuse with alcohol, like drinking alcohol. Mm. Um, that, that dominated my life. Uh, mm. and it's, it's, it's like, that's, that's like the truth. That's the honest truth. That's not an excuse. Yeah. That's what happened. And, um, but they were so focused on the steroids. Yeah. So they were blind to everything else, which at the time I started to realize that I was like, well, this is a good thing for me because nobody's seeing the real abuse over here, uh -huh. right? You know, trying to, you know, con a pharmacist or a doctor for a prescription or something. And, uh, you know, it's definitely not a prescription for steroids, it's a prescription for painkillers. Right. Right. So then after the four year career or contract at Green Bay, they had let me go and they didn't, they, they told me that they weren't going to resign me. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, my drinking and drugging had become bad enough where I was, I would even say to myself that, you know, especially looking back now, I was unemployable. Oh. I wasn't, yeah, I was dominating every day so much that I wasn't even responsible enough to show up for any kind of a job anywhere, mm -hmm. let alone, you know, 
to play at a, a pro football. Um, so I, you know, continued. So I was out of the league for three years and there was no set number of like three years. It's just three years was, it got worse. The drinking and the drugging got worse. And, um, you know, there was outside things happening to, you know, my, my brother had passed away, you know, at 31 years old mm-hmm. and then he had passed away in 1993 from cancer. Um, and. So, you know, I kind of doubled down on my, my intake to basically numb the pain of loss of of that traumatic loss. And sure. uh, And then, but those are all like, like, and then there was like, you know, my mom and dad had gotten divorced after, you know, you know, over 30 years of marriage. Wow. And so that was traumatic too. Sure. But I drank and abuse drugs because I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. So, you know what I'm saying? It's like, there are circumstances, but there are those same circumstances happen today to people mm-hmm. and families and they confront them head on and they deal with, with, with those things with great courage mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, they'll deal with great adversities with great courage and it reveals your character, I think. So. Oh, yeah. In March of, you know, March 23rd of 95, I had had enough. Like that was the day I got, so that's the day I put myself in treatment. But, you know, like that week wow. before, you know, I had a good friend talk to me about it. And, and I was just sick and tired of all my BS. And I was sick and tired of all my excuses and all of everything. And I just, you know, wanted to change and, and, felt that was one of the key things that was, you know, a roadblock. Oh, for sure. So would you say that there was one pivotal moment, maybe the one you just described that led you to the points like what I'm doing not only is not working, but it's killing my body. Yeah. (laughs) Um, um, you know, because at that time, when you mentioned March 23rd of 95, was, was it still the painkillers and alcohol at that yeah. time? Yeah. Okay. So it was still both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, the decision was ma- like a, the decision to get help was made like four or five days before. Okay. I just couldn't, the place that I was going to where I got for treatment in Brighton, Michigan at Brighton hospital. Um, they didn't have any beds available. Oh, so they said, but we do have a bed available like in four, three or four days. Um, and I, you know, I was like, yes, put, you know, put me down and I'm, I'll be down for it, you know, getting administered and all that stuff or okay. admitted, whatever. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. But there was no, like, there was no one event. Mm-hmm. I'd say there's, you know, just accumulation of years of events of, especially the three years. I mean, I shouldn't say especially the three years off because the four years in Green Bay were rough. But then the three years of not playing and just, just, you know, I, I, I don't want to say, I mean, it was a waste of time, but it wasn't a waste of time because it helped me get to that level of emotional, that low level of emotional pain, that deep abyss of pain where um, it prompted 
a decision to be made mm-hmm. of change because I was like, I can either stay in this pain and it can get worse. And I thought for each year of those three years I was out of the league, I was like, I can't get worse and it would get worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, I, I was ready. I was ready. And there was a lot of people that tried to help me along the way in Green Bay and in um, those three years out of the league. But I just, you know, wasn't ready. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about that process of becoming sober. And from there, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a sobriety advocate. Because that's maybe a term that some folks don't understand. Right. And it's, it's a common term used in, um, people that are public about their sobriety, or you could be a sobriety advocate, not be like publicly vocal about it. You know, you could, I mean, 12 step program I belong to, like the second word in it is about anonymous, right? So (laughs) (laughs) that's a good point. Okay. But it's like, you know, yeah, there's anonymity and there's also like, there's 12 steps, but there's also 12 traditions and the 12 traditions talk about really like group anonymity and the program anonymity. So you'll always hear me re- refer to 12 steps, but not the name of the program, but everybody pretty much knows the program's name. And, right. Um, so the, tra- you know, traditions state that we would prefer you to say 12 steps. And and I totally respect that because without that program, I probably wouldn't be here. And, and that's a long, almost a hundred years old now coming up, you know, in about another 15, 20 years, that 12 step program will be a hundred years around. Wow. And that's, um, you know, it's something to be said for something to stand that long and, and, you know, save, you know, so many lives. Um, sure. But, you know, and, and it's not the only way to get sober, but it's what worked for me. So I don't question it. And, right. Right. And I, exactly. and I tried a lot of different ways and a lot of, and a lot of those ways, none of those ways worked where they would work briefly for a week or two, but this one worked and it stuck. And as long as I continue to practice the principles of that program, mm-hmm. you know, things are, you know, moving forward. Now that doesn't mean just because you stop drinking or drugging or whatever the chemical is that everything in your life becomes okay. Um, <laughs> right. There's an example that's used about, you know, if you have a drunk horse thief that steals horses, what do you do or what is he when you sober him up? Well, he's a sober horse thief. He still right. steals horses and he probably does it better. Um, <laughs> right. Cause he's sober. Okay. Cause he's the, yep. You know, he's not falling down drunk. So you have to change your behaviors. You have to change who you're surrounded with. You have to change, mm-hmm. um, you know, the people you're around. And, uh, there's a lot of change that has to happen. You know, one of the things that in treatment, one of the counselors said something, which for a brief moment gave me some relief. And then I got overwhelmed and she said, there's only one thing that you have to change. And I was like, okay, if there's only one thing that's good, and I'm thinking it's going to be just stop drinking and drugging. And it's like, right. And that one thing was that you have to change everything. <laughs> right. And you know, it's like, <laughs> and then you're like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? Right. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, then, then you're reminded by those people that 
they eloquently remind you. They don't talk down to you. They, they treat you with respect and they're like, but they remind you eloquently that nobody comes into treatment on a winning streak. That's a good point. You're there because your best decisions got you here to this room, to Mm. this treatment center. Mm -hmm. Like, and I thought, wow, she's right. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and that's where a lot of people will dig their heels in and be like, no, or, um, I was beat up enough emotionally, spiritually, and, and physically to think to myself, you know what, maybe I don't have all the answers. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. You know, maybe I should listen to some of these people yeah, and and try some of their suggestions and, um, and thank God I did. Well, that's fantastic. I'm glad you did. I am. I am glad I did. I'm sure a lot of people around them. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm curious. What was the process like for, cause I, I know that 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 woman who shared that with you said the only thing you have to change is everything well one of the key things and you mentioned it a moment ago was about your relationships mm-hmm. and those had to change the people that were closest to you yes that they had to it either had to be different people or the removal of people what was that process like a lot of it was organic um, as soon as you stop buying for everybody like rounds and drinks and stuff all these friends that are like your best friends and that, you know, have their arm around you and they're like, I love you, man. And all this stuff. Um, they seem to disappear when you stop buying and when you stop drinking. Interesting. You right. Think how that works. So there's an argument. Well, it's not just if you're buying booze either. It could be right, buying right. anything. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's right. It applies to a lot of things. Yeah. So organically, a lot of it happens. And then obviously conscious decision. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Decisions that you make, suggestions that you take from people that know how to maintain or you know, how to get sober and then maintain and keep sobriety over uh, a sustainable amount of time, hopefully the rest of your life. Um, you naturally, things will change. I had never went to a 12-step meeting before treatment. Yeah. Um, I got introduced to a 12-step meeting and treatment and then was told or was strongly suggested that I continue to go to 12 step meetings and get a sponsor and do all these things. Well, and I did. Mm-hmm. And when you start surrounding yourself with people like that, that are going along that path of sobriety, well, you start to get friends like that in sobriety. Mm-hmm. And then that's where that like naturally things happen. And then, you know, you'll get some people that hang around and uh, will keep hanging around and until you know, they're almost, I don't want to say they, they hope you fail, but they're kind of just waiting for you to fail. And when you're, when you're, you know, failing now, they got their drinking buddy back. Right. You know, so it's, uh, but it's, the process is interesting. It's, it's, it's always evolving, you know, sure. Um, it's coming up, you know, for me, almost uh, come next week, it'll be 27 years and Congratulations, man. Thank that's you. fantastic. And that's only by the grace of God. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like the last 27 years I've been living, you know, I just used the phrase living on borrowed time. My friend mm-hmm. used the phrase living on house money or betting on ho- with house money. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, every day is literally a 
you know, don't waste the day. Mm. Um, and there are, you know, there are days that, you know, you're not as inspired because you're human and, and, and you still make mistakes and you still make bad decisions. Um, a lot of things do change organically by default, just because of the removal of the chemical. Right. Right. But then that's why they have 12 steps yeah. to change the person and their behavior to take a look at what they've done to reflect on your own stuff, your own behaviors, your own past behaviors, your own inventory, and to correct those things and to make, you know, amends where amends are due. And then, yeah. and then in the big scheme of things, uh, you know, like the last three steps pretty much talk about a maintenance and, a, and carrying the message of sobriety. So sobriety advocate, not just sobriety advocate, but also, I mean, it is for me, it's a big one because it saved my life, mm -hmm. but also just a, an advocate of just being a good human being. Like try to be the best human being you can be, not just the best. I mean, football was something, was a big part of my life, mm -hmm. I mean, a huge part of my life. Um, so I don't discount it. I acknowledge it. I acknowledge the great things that were done and the horrible things that I've done, like while playing or lack of playing, I should say. Yeah. And then I was lucky enough to come back and play sober. So now 55 years old, when I look back and reflect on my life as like football, you know, football being such a center, like focus tunnel vision to get to that level, all that work involved. Now at 55, I look back at football and I'm like, that was a platform for me to carry the message of today, mm -hmm. you know, and it gives me, it gives me in, in a lot of ways, uh, um, access to platforms that I wouldn't have had with, if I didn't play football, plus it, you know hopefully helps other football players or other athletes be like, look, he was a lost cause. I mean, he was, you know, everybody, you know, was kicking him when he was down, but not, you know, but there was a few that weren't and you know, those few that help you up or they, they extend, you know, their hand down to you to help you up. It's like, you, you never forget those people. No. And a lot of people, you know, I can't, I can't go without saying that a lot of people helped me. There's no way I could have done it by myself. I tried. I tried. Yeah. <laughs> I have, you know, the willpower of a bull. And up to that point in my life, until the day I walked into that treatment center, if I said I was going to do something, I could do it. And it mm -hmm. might take some time or whatever, but I could accomplish it. That was kind of like the results I was getting. Okay. Doing things the way I was doing them. Right. Except I couldn't get sober. And I tried hundreds of different ways to get sober. And I just couldn't do it. And I would get, you know, I would be dry for a week or two weeks. And then that voice in my head would be like, see, you don't have a problem. You just did it for two weeks. You didn't take a drink or a drug for two weeks. So then you can just start a little bit. Right. And okay. it's like, you know, <laughs> that's when you're like, no, this ain't working. So that's, <laughs> that's when, uh, you know, we need each other in, 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 in that respect. But I think in the big scheme of things in everything, whether you have a drug problem or not, I don't think human beings are, are wired to be, um, isolated. I think right. that, that, that you need community and that you need 
uh, you know, people around you and who you surround yourself with, I think is crucial. That was one of the big things who you surround yourself with and, um, just things, you know, things like that. It's, 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 it's a lot of it's is most of it is fundamental. <laughs> most of it is foundational, mm-hmm. but there's a certain part of it that does evolve as you evolve. Sure. Sure. And you hope that you evolve. Yeah. Now, part of your journey involves um, coming to faith. Yes. In God. So tell us a little bit about that and what, how did that come about and what impact does that have upon you now? Well, you know, here's the interesting thing. Like I was, even in my darkest days, Mm-hmm. the deepest abysses of my alcoholism and drug addiction, I never blamed God mm. and still always believed in God. Okay. Um, and, you know, I was born and raised Catholic. Um, I was an altar boy for probably 10 years in Canada. Um, I did very good upbringing, um, you know, church going every Sunday and I resented it a lot of times and, you know, as a kid and even with the Sunday school and stuff for a couple of years, but that foundation is kind of set and, and it doesn't have to just be Catholicism. It could be, you know, whatever spiritual base, uh, or, you know, religion base that people are brought up in or belief base that they're brought up in. I think if at the end of the day, it's, it's for the good. It's mm-hmm. a good thing because there are things that are not good that are community based and stuff like that. But, um, through those, through those darkest times, I never blamed God. I never disbelieved. I never lost faith. Mm-hmm. The, if anything, I lost faith in myself. I, I felt like, I never felt like, you know, God, why are you doing this to me? That never entered my mind. Mm-hmm. It was always like, I, I would talk to myself a third person and be like, Tony, why are you doing this thing to yourself? Uh, right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, you know, one of the hardest things to do is, or one of the hardest gifts we have, if, if it's a gift or if it's a curse is free will. Yeah. You know? And it's, but I think it's a gift, you know, because it's, it gives you an opportunity. I feel, I feel lucky that I've had great adversity and, but everybody's going to everybody, if they haven't had great adversity yet, it's coming. Trust me. <laughs> um, it may not, and it may not have anything to do with chemical and it probably won't have anything to do with chemicals or, or stuff like that, but everybody's going to have to deal with adversity in their life. Everybody. Oh, for sure. And I think that if you're sheltered from it, as a child growing up or as a teenager growing up or as a young adult growing, you know, into yourself, the harder it is for that person to adjust to great adversity, because you'll have minor adversities that you think are great adversities that are not even considered speed bumps to some people. Right. And, um, so, you know, my, I mean, in my opinion, the whole program is based around spiritual Mm -hmm. and is based around, you know, God, if you will, Um, the 12 steps program. Yeah. Yeah. 
and you know it, and even the, the word god is written down I, w- I wouldn't hesitate to say over a hundred times in the in a 12-step book but they talk about the god of your understanding mm-hmm. which again lets you figure it out um i've always had the same kind of god of my understanding the only like paradigm there was a big paradigm shift in how i looked at certain things though when i got sober okay i had this vision and i think it came from influence um of a punishing god um and when i got sober i knew that i couldn't do it and i knew that it would take a higher power um which for me was God and yet the same God of my understanding. But then I would question and be like, well, how can such a God of punishment have so much grace? Yeah. You know, to give somebody like me this kind of a life, um, after doing, you know, all these, you know, wrong things and bad decisions, um, Mm -hmm. you know, before. So, you know, there was a shift there and I think that comes with great adversity. I think it comes with growing up. I think it comes with getting older, having more experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it becomes, I think it becomes with, if you're interested in change and change, especially yourself, changing yourself, that when you take that introspective look at yourself, that there has to be like, okay, well, if this happened, why did it happen? You know, it's like, you know, you'll say why, well, I made this decision. Why did you make that decision at this time now, instead of before when you constantly made the wrong decision? And then, you know, I think a lot of people have somewhat different experiences, but fundamentally, I think the experience becomes the same of the reason why Mm. the change happened. And it's a, you know, act of providence or act of God or act of grace and mercy or, um, whatever phrase you want to use. I, mm-hmm. I know what it was for me and I, you know, I don't question it. Um, you know, every morning, you know, I ask for God's will to be done. I ask for God to speak through me, through my mouth, when I open my mouth and not my ego. Um, because my ego wants to embellish the bad stories to make them sound even worse, to make them sound, to get more attention or to make the the great stories or good stories sound even better to make myself look better or the whole situation better. And that's my, you know, my natural kind of wiring of my human ego and, and stuff where if I consciously ask God, when I hit my knees in the morning every morning to speak through me and guide me and direct me because I literally say I can't do this by myself. I tried and we, we saw what the result was. Um, so when I ask for guidance and direction, um, I can, like, I literally will feel my shoulders get lighter Mm. because I almost feel it, but they didn't feel heavy in the first place, but then they got lighter than they felt. And it's like, so maybe I was putting all this pressure on myself to now I've got to step outside the door and be this 
human being that's got it all together and you know it's got his life together and is everything from finances to relationships to you know uh employment entrepreneurship whatever the case may be mm-hmm. and it's not like that it's not it's not always like that for everybody and it's not always like that all the time mm-hmm. because how much time and effort and devotion i give to something and time being the most valuable thing is how it will either grow and sprout or die sure hey everyone i just wanted to say thank you so much for tuning in today for part one of my interview with tony mandarich now be on the lookout part two of my interview with tony is coming up very very soon so thanks again for being here today and we'll talk to you guys next time bye everybody